Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to Leading Better and Growing Faster with Joe and TJ. I'm Joe. And I'm TJ. And we are The Schoolhouse 302. Where you can find blog posts, podcasts with expert guests, curated book recommendations, and our genius thoughts. Always on a topic that is proven to help you lead better and grow faster. If you want to support the show, all you have to do is hit us with a like, a share, a follow, or a comment. On our site or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you access our material. Again, thanks for listening and for leading better and growing faster with us. Here we go with another great episode. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Paul Bloomberg. Paul, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This episode, we're focused on systems thinking, but really the relationships within the system and how they work in harmony together. With this in mind, your work fits perfectly. So TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Paul? Sure thing. Thanks for that, Joe. Dr. Paul Bloomberg is the founder and CEO of the Core Collaborative Learning Network based in San Diego, California, and New York City. The mission of the Core Collaborative Learning Network is to expand learner ownership and agency through building a culture of belonging and efficacy and collaborative inquiry. The core collaborative defines learner as all the people in the system who partner with students. We love that. We've written about a learning culture, Paul, that's right up our alley. The core collaborative strives to cultivate learners who embody empathy, open-mindedness, patience, and perseverance, who use their energy and expertise to make a positive impact in the world we share with others. Dr. Bloomberg is the co-author of the best-selling book, Leading Impact Teams, Building a Culture of Efficacy, and lead author of Peer Power, Unite, Learn, and Prosper, Activate an Assessment Revolution, through Mimi and Todd Press, and the lead author on the Empower Ed Learner E-Toolkit. Paul has led multiple successful school turnaround efforts and believes that public education must play a major role in deconstructing systems of oppression. I'm going to say that again that education must play a major role in deconstructing systems of oppression. Paul served on the National Parents Union. The National Parents Union is a network of highly effective parent organizations and grassroots activists across the country that is united behind a set of common goals and principles to channel the power of parents. Paul lives with his husband, Tony, in California. Alex and Taylor, Tony and Paul's sons, are the inspiration for launching the Core Collaborative in 2015. Okay, Paul, an impressive bio. We're going to dive into your most recent book. It's called Amplify Learner Voice Through Culturally Responsive and Sustaining Assessment. And we want our listeners to know something about this concept that you have here. It's a powerful term. It's Culturally Responsive Sustaining Education, C-R-S-E. Let's start there. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think... In terms of this book, I mean, the Core Collaborative, we really founded on implementing assessment for learning in systems across the country and world. And I think we just were really taking a hard look at our impact over the course of the pandemic. And we do case studies of pretty much every system we work in. 
and the different capacities we work. And we noticed in some schools, kids were thriving more than others, doing similar practices that we were trying to use in schools across the country, but there was a big shift and the success rate in the schools that probably focus more on social emotional learning, probably more honored the cultural identities of the kids and looked at those kids for bringing funds of knowledge into the classroom that you could utilize to build on to learn more. It just became clear that we needed to rethink formative assessment through a cultural lens. And so that's really how the book came to be. And then we started to think about why do formative assessment people, nerds like me, <laughs> why are they not hanging out with the cultural responses to stated ed folks? Like, how do we start to bring these worlds together and partner with schools in the process? Because we wouldn't be anything without our schools. And so I think that's kind of what the crux of the book was and also knowing that assessment, grading and assessment violates so many kids. And so what could we do to create an assessment experience where kids can learn more about themselves as learners and also contribute to the growth of their peers? And so I think it was really grown for a bunch of values that we already had, but just trying to rethink something that we already were doing pretty well. That makes sense. It does. It makes perfect sense, Paul. And I do want to go into this formative world a little bit, because in the book, you do mention and make it very clear that formatives are not a product. And I think that is something that the audience needs to embrace and understand, but also that you tie that with disrupting inequitable systems. Can you dig into formatives more? Because I think there might be and not to anyone's fault, just how we're classically trained around summatives and formatives, but you're introducing you and the core collaborative, a totally different way of looking at formatives. Can you dig into that for us? Yeah, I don't think that we're doing anything <laughs> that was really supposed to be different than what formative assessment was supposed to be. But I think our country, it really became big in the age of accountability right? When we were all about kids maintaining certain proficiency levels. So formative assessment in our country tended to be just more testing and quizzing and shucking around the data and supposedly differentiating and supporting kids based on the data. But typically the teachers didn't even have any time to do that. So it was a great idea in theory, <laughs> but it just became more testing and more, you know, looking at data, but the kids weren't really involved in every aspect of the process. And when you look at the pure research regarding formative assessment, it was all about just amplifying feedback to kids. And that's done through self-assessment, peer assessment, reflection, all of these other ways that we can give feedback to kids where they're involved in every aspect of the process. And they're also learning things about themselves in the process. So it becomes to be very learner-centered instead of teacher-directed. So our work is really how to amplify learner voices through the self-assessment, peer assessment process and reflective process that leads to goal setting and even learning how to set goals, monitor goals, what to do when you don't reach your goals, you know, the habits of learning that we need to be resilient citizens. So I think the book is really re-looking at a really good model of assessment. Our country just hasn't been big fans of it. I mean, in the thousands of schools I've been in, formative assessment is typically a test. 
that you give to the kids and then you do it to them. And our model is doing everything with the kids and making sure that they have agency over their own learning process. And they're a part of co-constructing what success looks like for them. So that's the difference. It's fascinating, Paul. I will tell you something about Joe though, which is if we let this show go down the road, he will geek out with you over formative assessments for an hour. So <laughs> we're going to have to continue to bring it back to systems. And I'm with you sure. and Joe, I'm a formative assessment nerd. It's my whole life. <laughs> And I always feel misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. For seven years, I was director of assessment and accountability. And that's a bad term. Many <laughs> districts. I'm like, I'm a likable person. You know, like, I know. <laughs> like this assessment is the window. It is, it is the window. It's how we're doing it. So I appreciate TJ for keeping us on track though. Yeah, totally. So staying on that subject though, Paul, and kind of zooming out a little bit, I am enthralled with and surprised by how more people aren't talking about culturally responsive assessments. It's baffling. Like we see all these equity plans and grading's not included when yeah. it's the number one thing. Like we see equity plans, we see restorative justice plans, all good stuff. But when it's void of grading, and it's still a penalty system, I think we missed the boat. Like, why aren't more people talking about this? I don't really get it because, you know, when Hattie came out with a visible learning synthesis, you would think even more people would get behind just assessment for learning. You know, disregard the culture response piece that we're really looking to add to the body of research, right? But assessment for learning isn't even living in classrooms across the country. And we have the Danielson framework and the Barzano framework. And even Texas has a, an evaluative framework that has assessment for only. And I got to tell you, I rarely ever see it in classrooms. And it has been a part of our culture supposedly for decades. And how many schools and districts are using Danielson and those teachers are scoring highly effective and you never see any evidence of self-assessment, peer assessment, goal setting, reflection, portfolio use. You might've seen it one time, right? So I don't get it either because the bonus is so great, right? You're teaching kids to understand who they are. You're closing the metacognitive equity gap that lives across our schools where some kids get taught what metacognition is and some kids don't because they're just doing drill and kill, right? And so like, to me, I don't get it either, but I'm bound and determined <laughs> to make a mark, <laughs> even if it's little. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. We appreciate you trying to make that dent and that mark and to continue going down that line a little bit, Paul. I think what happens very often is content and pedagogy become king and queen, right? Like we yep. start to think they're the pillars of a good classroom. When assessment's been overlooked until, like you said earlier, like no child left behind, but then it's punitive. Look at it through the culturally responsive lens or as the teacher, as a doctor. Like, no, the student, you're really looking at them through a lens of what and how they're learning, and it complicates teaching. I think that's an, an essence to this that a lot of people don't want to wrangle with is I think one of the reasons, even in my own district, we're guilty of it because assessment and allowing that to drive 
a lot of what goes on in the classroom, we have to be willing to admit that it conflicts with, you know, curriculum maps and things like that. But it doesn't mean you don't have the standards. We just have to put it on a table and be willing to wrestle with it. But that is a hard, hard thing to do. I'm not sure there's a question in there, but if you wouldn't mind expanding on that a little bit as well. Well, I think like what you're kind of speaking about is the assessments that we use, typically traditional assessments, they're efficient, they're quick, but they don't give you much insight into kids thinking. And at the end of the day, we're teachers. And our job is to understand what our kids are thinking and to make that learning visible. And some of the most overlooked data that we never look at is the kids' perception about themselves as learners. How do they perceive themselves as learners? What evidence do we have that shows us that? And then what are we going to do to ensure that they have a healthy learning identity? based on that evidence. So that evidence is typically student perception. It's their voices. And so sometimes it doesn't feel like it's the most efficient or effective or the quickest way. But once you figure out the framework and you deliver it from your own lived experience, because each teacher is going to do formative assessment a little differently, and that's okay. As soon as you start to figure it out, it becomes way more effective, way more efficient because you're actually listening to children and they always lead the way. They always tell you what to do next. But looking at bubble sheets and data sheets isn't going to give us the insight that we need to help move a learner to help them reach the ambitious goals they set for themselves. It just won't happen. Yeah. So I mean, again, you're speaking our language about student voice, student discourse, listening to the kids. It's such a powerful thing. And we hear it over and over again in terms of its importance. We can't answer this question as to why more people aren't uber focused on this. But let's talk about the ones who are. What are they getting that we're not seeing in terms of scalability? What's the trigger that says, here's a school and they understand that this has to be the priority? What are leaders doing to make it happen? I think there's a couple of triggers that I've seen. One being one of the first things we do when we touch down in the system is we have teachers interview their kids about what an effective learner is, who they are, how they act in the class. And that typically becomes a pretty big aha moment for teachers when classrooms are just compliant driven and the kids think that raising their hands and only sharing at a certain point or walking in a row or sitting in a certain way is what learning is. Once teachers understand that that's what kids think learning is, usually that's a pretty big trigger for them to change. The other big trigger I think that helps people change is the textbook industry. It's ridiculous. And so you have 25 objectives thrown into one unit and you expect the kids to master all those objectives. And so it's really a pretty easy go to say, let's really just narrow this unit and get kids to be more reflective around what they're learning. Most teachers will jump in and try because they know that the textbook isn't helping them either, right? They know they're just turning the pages and they're following it. And that's not making a difference, even when they're made to do it. So I think we have two kind of big things typically that I see happening. Teachers talking to kids in a new way that triggers them to rethink the way they teach or just efficiency. I can't do it anymore. And the way that I'm doing it, it is not helping me or the kids. 
Yeah, I was real excited to see that dispositional learning was a key focus within this book. I think it's often overlooked. I just was fascinated when I saw that just because we don't see it as much. And like you said, the kids will always direct the next steps. We just got to be in tune with them. Yeah. Paul, to switch gears a little bit, TJ and I typically ask our guests, you know, someone they follow a person or group for either knowledge or inspiration. But if you wouldn't mind, I would like to kind of bridge this with a truly exciting event that you have coming up. And then what people could get out of mind fuel, because we do look for people for inspiration. We do look to follow individuals, but this is a marquee event. Could you tell us more about mind fueled, what that's about and how people could become a part of that or get access to it? Yeah. So I think I'm kind of answering one of those questions. So Dr. Alan Daly was my dissertation chair at University of California, San Diego, way back in the day. And I was really interested in school reform. I was named principal of a school that was failing for over like 15 years. And so I joined this doctoral program at Allen and the whole program, it had a social justice focus. It was all focused on asset-based pedagogies and social network theory, just really looking at the relationships within our system and how you drive learning through that. And how do we better take care of the individual in the system while also nurturing the collective? So how do you do both? How do you balance that? So Minefield has always been focused on that balance of the personal and the collective. And now I think we're really looking at personal, collective, and then now community. I think we're really starting to think larger about how a school lives within a community and how a school can serve and support a community better. So that's where it really came from. And Dr. Alan Daly, Academia EDU, if you just Google Alan Daly Academia, you'll see all of his studies and have another crush like I did on Alan. But yeah. And so the vision of the conference is to bring all of our 75 coaches and consultants together and clients and learn together from each other. So it's really about reducing power structures that sometimes people think when they have a consultant and recognizing that a coach or a consultant is just a learning partner and we can't do our work without you. And how could we come together once a year and learn from one another? And that's how the conference really started to take off, where we all come together and sit alongside one another and learn from one another. So we have consultants and best-selling authors speaking. We also have educators and practitioners and principals and teachers also speaking at the event and teaching us what they've done over the last year to get more impact within their systems. That's awesome. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. Dr. Alan Daly will link to his work as well as the Core Collaborative and MindFueled as a conference. So listeners, if you're hearing this now and you want to know more, all clickable on the site at theschoolhouse302.com. Paul, like Joe said, we'd like to ask some very granular questions to our guests so that our listeners can take some nuggets of wisdom away and replicate what you're doing. What's one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? You can tailor that to either mind fueled or the core collaborative or even amplifying student voice or just one thing you think people should do that they might not be doing. Yeah, I think there's a theme that runs through the Amplify book around active listening and validating others' feelings. 
And I think it runs through every single chapter and it's a, definitely a focus of mind fueled. But I think that if we took more time to really listen to what others are saying and show them we're listening by reflecting back what they're saying and validating how they're feeling and not jumping in with our own two cents, I think we'd learn a lot more about what to do. If I'm talking to teachers out there or principals out there, I think the first thing you do is you listen to kids every single day. You have to listen to what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And the same goes for the teachers. Like they're all of our learning partners. And so I think this idea of really listening and showing someone that you're listening and making it all about them is really, really important in the climate that we're living in now. And always has been. I think you're right though, Paul, more important than ever. We know people are hurting right now. COVID for the most part, granted, you know, you'll see jokes now just watching SNL skits. Somebody sent me, you know, get COVID, you know, get your 10 day break. And, you know, we have some jokes and stuff like that. And it's not uncommon for society to react like that after a tough time. Yeah. We see it all the time with students and teachers. I mean, there's been a lot of suffering and I think you're describing, you know, just being present. If somebody is speaking, just listen. Yeah. It's shocking how hard that is to do. (laughs) It's really shocking. And I think for me, because of all the Zoom work, sometimes I go into that coaching session and it's only a listening session, right? And just reflecting back because sometimes I think we get to the problem solving way too fast. (laughs) And we don't truly understand all the perspectives we need to understand before we make a shared decision together. I think we rush because there's a timeline, there's a budget line. like, And in that rushing, I think this is a famous quote, rushing is a form of violence. Which I think you can Google it and find out who said it. But I kind of think that, especially as school leaders, we're constantly rushing. There's too many things to do within the time that we have. And so we're cramming things into a day. And so by doing that, I think we violate a lot of people, unknowingly. Well, You know, you're very successful in many ways, very involved in different ways. You've led schools successfully. The Core Collaborative is very successful. What's one thing you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? I've been thinking a lot about this since you sent that in the email. And I think that I want to learn how to be a restorative practitioner. I mean, like, I want to learn how to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it with kids. I don't want to teach about it. I want to actually be it and do it. I feel like I'm doing components of it in my coaching work, but I feel like I want to experience it at the level that I think it's important for me to experience it. And however long that takes, I think it's going to take a couple of years, three years, because my ultimate goal is I want to live a more restorative mindset and heart set. I want to live that way. And so I just want to understand it in as many ways as I can from as many people as I can and learn it and be a student of it because I believe in the value of it so much. Paul, thank you for that. That's a very heartfelt answer. I wonder in your mind, if you could share What's one step towards that for you? Like, what are you going to try to do to make that successful, to be that restorative practitioner that you want to be, that maybe our listeners can say, well, I want that too, but how do we go about doing that? Well, currently there's three big things I'm working on. One is intentionally reframing negative thinking. 
you know? So that's like something I think my mom taught me when I was a you know, saxophonist way back in the day, when I would like get all the nervous and have all this negative thinking and I'd reframe it on a T chart on the other side and write what the facts were. And then I think I'm just trying to wake up and be optimistic every day, even if I have to fake it. And I got to tell you, uh, faking it for about a half an hour, 45 minutes actually works. <laughs> I'm actually more optimistic. And I think just a constant journey of treating people with dignity and understanding that their lived experience is very different than mine. And I am not there to judge them. And that is really hard. <laughs> so those are the three things that I'm really working on. And then there's all the practical stuff, like I need to learn all the structures and all. That's going to be easier for me. I think it's those three things I just talked about. That's like the work in progress thing. I want to make sure I have all three of those things for our listeners. You said reframe negative thinking, wake up and be optimistic. Yeah, resolve to be optimistic every day. <laughs> and treat people with dignity. Those treat are yourself with dignity first, because if you don't treat yourself with dignity, you're not gonna be able to treat others with dignity. That's something I've learned in the last four or five years. It's awesome. I mean, they're aspirational thoughts. I mean, I think our listeners are gonna get a ton from just that part of this. I already am. I'm reading this book called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. And it's interesting in the first chapter or two, he says, to break some habits, as soon as your feet hit the floor, as you dangle them over the side of the bed, say to yourself or out loud, even this is going to be a great day. And I don't know that I think that every morning when the alarm clock goes off, but I do not think that every morning. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's hard, but if that's it's the way so we hard. start today, think about the way we'll end it. So yeah, we're yeah, transforming yeah. our own thoughts first. Yeah, we're real. Paul, what's one thing that has led to or continues to support your growth as a leader? Like, what are you doing to continue expanding your own capacity? So I came across the Science of Happiness podcast. It's from the UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center. Do you guys ever listen to that? I love it. I love it. But what I love about it is in every episode, they give you a research or evidence-based practice known to increase your happiness. And then they try this out on an individual and then the individual puts that into practice for four weeks and then they debrief the process and then they give you the full science behind it. And I have to tell you, I have learned more about being a leader <laughs> by practicing the different exercises and actually trying them out with consultants, employees and teachers. And what I like about it is sometimes they're only five or seven minutes long, so they're perfect. And sometimes you can get a little more out of them. So I think that's something that I do pretty frequently, at least a couple times a week, where I'm really focused on that. Definitely have to check that out, Paul. I'm not familiar with that. We have written a couple times about the work out of UPenn. I do think geographically, I find that fascinating, though, because <laughs> Penn for us is 45 minutes away, and your experience are probably closer to that side of the West Coast. But Martin Seligman is a powerhouse in this field. I've been reading his work for a long time and at UPenn, we'll put it in the show notes as well. He created something called PERMA, 
And it's like positive emotions, engagements, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. But I like the idea that what you described as a podcast, because a lot of Seligman's work is authentic happiness and some other stuff, but it's yeah. in books. I find podcasts at times, if I can shut them off after like that 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and reflect on what I just yeah. listened to, I find it to be a little powerful. Yeah, I like it because they're concrete things that you can actually try and then you learn the science behind them. And I try most of them. <laughs> I try most of them. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, and why not, right? I mean, there's a world unto us now with the audio availability, the written word. It's so interesting because it is going to be the application of our learning that's going to make the difference. It's not the learning. Yeah. We have access to everything at this point. That's not our issue but it's how we're going to use it. Paul, let's wrap this up. One of my favorite questions always to ask is, what's one thing you used to think that you don't anymore? So I learned this from Omar, which is one of our restorative practitioners. And we were having a fire ceremony at our house. We had them all over for a weekend to come together, to learn together. And we were talking about triggers. We were sitting around the fire and Omar said, you know, a trigger is your own personal responsibility. And I think prior to that, I would blame others for my trigger. Oh, that person triggered me, that person, whatever. And I think that happened around this time last year. And I think every single time I'm triggered, <laughs> I recognize that this is my own stuff that I have to learn how to move through and I don't have to take everyone down with me. <laughs> and so I think just really truly believing that the trigger is my trigger to deal with. It's not the fault of somebody else. Extreme ownership. That's <laughs> something that we learned from Jocko Willink's work. And wow, if that's not a great place to kind of wrap up here, you know, even the triggers are yours to own. Um, <laughs> it was a good question that you asked me that because this whole interview was good for me mentally because I don't think we stop enough and reflect. So I appreciate giving me the opportunity to do that with you. A hundred percent. And we appreciate you being on the show with all you have going on and giving us your time. And for our listeners, Paul, is there anything else that you would like to add today? No, just trust the kids because they'll always lead the way. There you have it. Trust the kids. They'll always <laughs> lead the way. Another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog, theschoolhouse302.com for blog post podcasts and video blogs always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed hanging out with us and our special guest, Paul Bloomberg. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really enjoyable. I appreciate it. Hey leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time, and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make 
that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.